welcome to Coffee Talk at Godric's Hollow. I'm Monica. I'm Anish. And today we are going to be discussing From Rolling to Radcliffe, the transition from book to film. The main focus of our discussion today is going to be basically what, you know, what changed in between the the book and the movie. You know, what, what stayed the same? We're going to focus on characters and plot, uh, mood, and the setting as well. Right, these those physical and emotional landscapes that are created. And the questions that we want to answer are... Do the films do the books justice? And does that even relate to their quality? Or is it even relevant to their quality? And we want to figure out what's the purpose of an adaptation? Is it just to translate the novel? Is it to present new ideas? Is it to fall somewhere in between? And then also, does... How does an adaptation matter to the audience? And is the are the films a good representation of the meaning of the series? I want to get right into and it. I, or yeah, let's, let's get right into it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about characters. So we have the trio. Yeah, we have the trio. We have Harry Potter, and he's played by Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, so, what do you think are the main? Like, what do you think are the main changes we see, or are there any? Because, you know, as you know, I've been rereading the books, and I just can't not picture Anna Radcliffe. Like, I mean, right. um, and I don't know. If it's just because you know it's been ten years or eleven years that I've been watching them. You know, that could be part of it. But I think it's also just because he's an everyman in that there isn't really, I mean, there's a lot that's special about him, but there's also a lot that, you know, he's very normal in the sense that he goes through. I mean, like we've kind of talked about before, the series is all about, you know, maturing and getting to know yourself and figuring out who you are. And the kind of things that Harry goes through, especially in the later books, when we kind of get that angsty Harry, <laughs> who is like, oh gosh, you know, who's like yelling at everyone. I mean, you know, when you're 14 and 15, you just get so angry about everything. You feel misunderstood. You're in that weird, that weird gap between child and adult. You know, when you're, you don't want to be taken, you don't want to be treated like a child anymore. But the adults, not a girl, but not yet a like, woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to quote. The amazing Brit. Um, well, one. Th- well, maybe this is off topic of what you were saying, but I think I kind of um, fell in love with Harry while I was reading the series. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I thought that he was my perfect guy because he was in at least in the in the books he seems a little bit um, softer and a little bit insecure in the beginning. But I guess throughout, um, he's so normal in the things that he thinks about what what will people think of me? And, you know, I get nervous when I talk to girls. And 
Like, my best friend is annoying me so much right now because he just doesn't get it. Like, all these things that you think that you think the exact same things when you were growing up. And, and I think Daniel Radcliffe really captures that. You know, he... You know, it's sort of hard to play these, like, superhero types. Not that Harry's a superhero, but I, I, uh, I think it's really hard to play these sort of superhero types. I mean, I think... These superheroes, I think, are the closest we'll get to, like, wizards outside of Harry Potter. <laughs> in that, you know, they have their, like, these special powers, and they're kind of noble and self-sacrificing. And it's sort of hard to play that while still, you know, keeping, keeping the performance down to earth. I mean, heroes aren't down to earth. I mean, like, Superman, Superman and Spider-Man and the Hulk and Iron Man, like, they're all very, they have all these, you know... Right, no, they have this kind of uh, entitlement, this sense of entitlement, almost. Yeah, exactly. At least a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, A big challenge, I think, for Harry Potter and Daniel Radcliffe in general is to sort of try to not play into that sense of entitlement. Right, because... You know, the... Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, go ahead. No, the... the, what's, What's different about... The wizarding community is that, I mean, we're muggles looking in on this group of people, but everybody has the same abilities, or they can have the same abilities. I mean, of course, we have the specific differences, like Tonks with her morphous, like, uh, capabilities, but it's just, it's kind of the same thing as, as us in the real world, where everybody's kind of everybody's human, everybody has the same, you know, ability to think and walk and, and act and, and right. talk and, and influence, but you get people who have, who have the ability to kind of capture and, and make changes in the world. And at least for Harry, you know, I think that what Radcliffe did on the screen when he was younger, maybe it was just like naturally by being young and and scared to be in front of a camera, but I think he did get that kind of innocence and like fear, but also that sort of um, growing into growing into maturity very very well. Right. I mean, of course, he had his low points, um, like sometimes when he had to make the more serious comments. Like a little stutter, or you know, getting getting mad at his friends in in Prisoner of Az- or getting mad in Prisoner of Azkaban, and then also in in Order of the Phoenix. You know, you could kind of see so that it was... in Prisoner of Azkaban. Are you talking about that part where he yells out, "He was their friend." Yes. In the snow. I think like everybody, <laughs> like everybody. Whoever talks about that movie, like, brings that up. <laughs> What's our friend? <laughs> uh, I mean, you and I both adore the, Thor- the third movie. Oh, yeah, in, yeah. In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it does have these sort of messier parts, like, that yeah. scene. Uh, but then there's the, you know, the sort of infamous, um, uh, infamous, like, deleting of 
the, the identity of the Marauder. I mean, you never learn that movie that, you know, hit uh, James James Potter and Sirius Black and Remus Lupin and Peter Pettigrew were the creators of the map. But, okay, and, in thinking about it, does it matter that, that the audience who's watching the film doesn't know that they made that map? I think that it kind of matters on an emotional level, maybe not so much on a plot level, because on an emotional level, you sort of get, it's, first of all, it's another clue about James Potter, and at this point, we still don't know that much about him, and this is before, you know, Harry looks through Snape's pensive, this is before, you know, we get to know a lot of the stuff that we figure out and learn later on about James Potter and Lily, too, but, uh, so it's sort of a clue onto what kind of person he was, you know, I mean, Harry, I mean, Harry does have Lupin and Sirius at the end to sort of help him learn about, you know, his dad, but knowing that James was one of the Marauders does kind of connect Harry back to his dad in a strong way. Hmm. I think another thing is that by them having, you know, created being the, the, you know, masters of mischief at Hogwarts and everything... And knowing that that was the kind of legacy that Harry's dad left behind. Um, you know, Harry not know or us not knowing that Harry knows that does make us seem like we're, we're missing kind of an important point on getting to know Harry. Um, right. But I think we get, we do get that information, though, from Lupin and from... Serious, and then we also find out that you know they were all BFFFs at Hogwarts without knowing that oh, they made this map. I just think that in yeah, this yeah. conversation, yeah, you know, I I think you're correct in that in that interpretation. I mean, yeah, you do you do get that same information in in different, maybe more subtle ways throughout the movie, but. Uh, well, I don't know. Just, that show has <laughs> just been like a one, the one blemish in terms of Azkaban. The one but blemish. Other, I mean, other, than, <laughs> other than that, I thought it's a fantastic movie for multiple reasons. One, because I felt like it totally changed the whole game of the series. You know, Absolutely. Because in the, first, in the first two movies you have, they're so... They're very childish. They're very fantastical. They're... I mean, because you're still introducing the magical world to Harry, so you do get a lot of, you know, unnecessary. I I don't I I want to say unnecessary magic, but that just sounds it's not, it's not a good phrase. But. <laughs> <laughs> unnecessary magic, <laughs> unnecessary beautiful <laughs> sets. <laughs> well, it just I. No, sorry. Um. I just felt like the first two films, well, more so the Sorcerer's Stone than Chamber of Secrets, but Sorcerer's Stone just takes so long to kind of get going. And because uh, you have so much introduction, so much, you know, just like, it just feels like a lot of exposition, a lot of, uh, which I mean, it's true of the book also. I mean, I remember the book being very heavy on, like, let's introduce everyone and then get the, the plot rolling at chapter nine. 
Right. I mean, we don't get to Hogwarts till, you know, well into like the... Like, a hundred pages in. Probably. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, even further in, you know, like, Ron and Hermie, sorry, Juan Juan and Hermie <laughs> and Harry don't even become friends for, like, the first third of the book. Um, and, well, I think with... I think the first two books, well, at least the first book, definitely gets the mood right, I think, with, with the kind of fantastical yeah. nature of, of where we are and and the world that Harry has now entered. But maybe what it's missing is some depth. Yeah, I think I think depth is where I think that's that's a correct. I think that's a that's a good idea because you know because the I think the problem that I have with some kids movies is that they're so geared towards children that they kind of forget about the parents. <laughs> like Pixar, like like the movies like Shrek or like Finding Nemo or How to Train Your Dragon, notwithstanding, like I mean, there is a def, there's a definite class of you know, animated kids' movies that are geared towards everyone, but movies like Rio or, or like, those chipmunk movies or, like, Marmaduke or whatever, they, <laughs> they're, they're so geared towards children that they kind of lose focus of <laughs> Marmaduke. Of, like, like, story and characterization and, like, real meaningful, you know, emotions. And I felt like sometimes Sorcerer's Stone is guilty of that. Because it kind of moves from like set piece to set piece without really establishing. But what about anything. what did you think of the the moments where with the mirror of Erised and how that mood was created? I don't. I think I, that was that was emotional and that that did you know hit on what Harry doesn't have and what. And what he wants, what he desires. But yeah, do you not yeah. think that do you not think that it was as emotional as it could have been? Uh, no, I I think it was, but I don't think it. I don't think the movie sort of earns that emotional payoff of, the, of those scenes because I mean it's you sort of. I almost I almost want to say it's manipulative, but even that's not the right <laughs> word. It's like. Um, Chris it's, Columbus it's like manipulative? No. <laughs> but I, I feel like you sort of have to feel that way because it's like, oh, an orphan, you know, looking at his parents and wanting, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's like, it's one of those situations where you're bound to feel an emotional connection, but I don't think the rest of the movie lives up to that promise. I can't remember what happens right after the Mirror of Erised, but I don't think it's. I don't think it continues to develop this, you know, emotional connection that you were supposed to have with, with Harry. Well, I think that what, I mean, I think this is in the book, but when Harry confronts the Mirror of Erised at the end, and how he gets the, like, when he gets the the stone in his pocket, <laughs> like, maybe it's just because Dan was a kid, um... But his, like, <gasps> shocked face, like, that he realizes it's in his pocket, like, totally Voldemort entity on the back of Coral's head would have caught that. Like, totally. Yeah, yeah. 
But I, I think the one thing that Sorcerer's Stone does completely correct is uh, this, the friendship between Harry, Harry and Ron, you know, foremost, but then also Harry, Ron, and Hermione. I, maybe we can talk about Ron and Hermione since we discussed Harry earlier. Juan, Juan. Juan, Juan, and Hermione. <laughs> I, just, I just can't I, stop thinking of Juan, Juan. Because of that, half I mean, Wan is total stud. Wan is such a stud. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, okay. When I was growing up, my friends and I would always discuss who we thought was more attractive. Was it Daniel Radcliffe or was it um, Rupert Grint? And I always thought it was Daniel Radcliffe. But, like, literally every other friend I grew up with was like, oh my gosh, no way. Like, Rupert Grint. Like, definitely more attractive. Um, but maybe that's something our listeners can write in about. It, it might have something to do with the fact that Rupert Grant is so good with, like, being that sort of goofy sidekick that you just automatically endear yourself to him. You know, yeah. with Harry, I mean, I guess the, the the big issue with Harry is that he's always burdened. I mean, we talked talk about this before. He's right. always, he always has the role on his shoulders. And, uh, but with Ron and Hermione also is that they're so lovable because they're both, they're both sidekicks, but they're, they have a lot of depth to them and they sort of, and you know, they're both the protagonist. They're also both the protagonists in their own rights. I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, cause they, you know, they, all three of them go through a major arc throughout, throughout each movie individually, but throughout the whole series and throughout each book. But right. Uh, I think Ron is so good. I mean, one of my favorite parts of Chamber of Secrets, which is, is the Ford Anglia scene, or Angelia, yeah. uh, the yeah, flying yeah. car. The car scene. Which, uh, <laughs> the car, yeah. And it's funny to me because that part in the book is so tedious. I'm like, okay, let's, let's, it's, it's like another manufactured obstacle. Right, right. Uh, like, well, um, how are they going to get to school? Oh. Let's put them in a flying car. Uh, and they, you can totally tell that J.K. Rowling was like, okay, how do I get these kids to school in a different way than book one? Oh, they steal a flying car. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Which, I still but don't understand, has, like, why the parents would have left it there. Like, why didn't they... Like, were they abandoning the car? Like, now, with, you know, Amber Alert and Orange Alert and, like, whatever, Silver well, Alert... I had always imagined that they went into the platform with Ginny and then Harry and Ryan couldn't get through and they just immediately ran to the car. No, because didn't Ron say something like, oh, my parents are just going to operate back. Whatever. Well, they said they have the option to. Oh. Like, they're not stranded at the station. So they would find that the I car was gone and, and then... just, like, operate back or, you know... What? It still doesn't make... I mean, obviously, like... Harry and Ron didn't think things through. And we're like, yeah, I mean, I'll send an owl and say that I'm going to be late. <laughs> Obviously. Um, but, but I think one of the great things about that scene is that it really highlights like the comedy of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in the movie, at least. like Especially Rupert Grant's facial expressions. like mm-hmm. They're hysterical. Cause he's so, his face is like, like wax. So he can like, mold it into anything. <laughs> he, always gets, he like always gets the laugh. 
Well, I think the first two the first two books are really good translations. Yeah. They're really good at I mean the scores are wonderful, like those tunes have you know, played through my head all day. Um I love I, I loved Hedwig's theme. Everybody does. Who doesn't love it? <laughs> <laughs> and also the theme that plays when Harry walks through Diagon Alley that Yes, yes. I feel like that always like plays in my head when I'm like walking through like a mall or something. I also <laughs> or, like, really like the street. one the like it was also at the very end of the last movie. And I think it also played during Harry, when Harry was looking at, like a softer version of it played when Harry was looking at the Mirror of Erised. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's sad, but sweet. Um, I mean, Sorcerer's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> brings back good good childhood, like, young adult memories. <laughs> childhood memories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we saw it together. Really like, Did we see it together for the first time? Right? Both of our first times. No, I thought it was both of our second times. No, it was my first. Oh, it was my second. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> suggestive conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when I was like 12 years old and we were watching it, I mean, I totally loved it. And I, I, I mean, I still do. It's like, even though it's my least favorite, it's, it's not like I hate it and I can never watch it again. Like, it's very good. It's very funny, too. Yeah, yeah, I'll totally watch it when it's on ABC Family for three days. Totally watch it. Um, but then, so we see a mood shift. We see a mood shift with the third movie, and we're supposed to see another mood shift with the fourth movie because Harry comes in with longer hair. But the fourth movie totally fails on so many levels, especially when it comes to this emotional landscape that's created, I think. Um, you have this terrible thing occur at the at the Quidditch World Cup. You have a sign that's shown that says, like, Voldemort's back. <laughs> and we don't get enough of that recoil in the movie. I think the reason why I don't like Goblet of Fire is because it feels rushed. You know, I mean, the book is, like, over 700 pages long. I think the movie is probably about, like, two and a half hours long. But there's so much going on in that book. I mean, first, I mean, you have three tasks, all of which are, like, grand. I mean, they're gigantic. And they take up a lot of time. You know, it's not like they can just quickly go through each task. So I feel like they sacrifice a lot of the more emotional parts in order to save time for, like, the first task or the you know, the second task. And then all of that sort of builds to this, you know, finale, this climax in the graveyard, which is also huge. And so they just, like, I, I think they struggle too much with balancing uh, each each plot point, and they felt like they just kind of had to rush to the next one to get to the graveyard. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah... I totally see that they had a very large task <laughs> in front of them <laughs> to fit <laughs> these three tasks, plus the Quidditch World Cup, plus Voldemort's resurrection scene, plus Cedric's death scene, 
you know, plus Rita's eater, all this stuff into one. There's so much going on in the book that... And the giant, and all the romantic subplots with the Yule Ball. And, oh and my gosh, the Yule part. Ball. <laughs> I think that Hermione like cries. <laughs> Who's going to be the one to comfort her? So, oh my god. Well, okay, so... the uh, my Two of my favorite Hermione lines actually come from Goblet of Fire, the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One is when she yells at Harry that she's not an owl. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she isn't. <laughs> no, she's not. And for like weeks after I saw Goblet of Fire, I was like, oh my god, I'm not an owl. <laughs> I would say that to people. <laughs> okay, it was actually like three days after. It was just my parents. <laughs> like, oh. Mother, I'm not an owl. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, when she, uh, when she and Ron had that fight at the Yule Ball, and she's she spoiled everything. I was like, yeah, he totally did because she's totally going to get some from Victor Krause. <laughs> They're 14. <laughs> <laughs> this is so bad. I can't get over that. Oh my gosh. So bad. Uh, well, I mean, the funny thing about the trio is that they're so young, but they're so mature, and they're so old. Like, they're, they've seen so much, and they seem older than they are. Right, which is why Hermione goes for the 17-year-old. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever think of that? Like, she's 14, he's 17? No, he's probably, like, 21, and they, like, lied about his age so he could still be in high school. Like... No, he's definitely young. I mean, he's definitely 17. Oh, yeah, because they can't lie about his age because of the age line. Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, maybe, I don't know, but um, I always felt that Hermione and Victor Crumb was such an interesting pairing, and I'm afraid I I don't think it got as much of attention as it should have in the film, or even in the books, too, because, you know, it's not Hermione's perspective we're seeing things, so we don't really get to know, like, what's Going on. Yeah, like the line is missing where, um, you know, Hermione says, "Well, Vic- Vicky and I will write over the summer." Ha 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 ha. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, we miss all of that, but this is kind of interesting. So, *Goblet of Fire* touches on every single major plot point, and and does it like throws it in there, whatever shape it's in. And then you have a movie like *Half Blood Prince*, where all of this major stuff doesn't show up and it is more of these like little subplots like the date rape McClagan and the <laughs> and the Juan Juan and and all of that and the the kind of brooding Draco in the corner. Um, right. So what how do you why do you think that, that that occurred and how can it ever be reconciled? Well I think Probably, well, so I consider Half of Prince to be a superior film to Goblet of Fire, and I think it's in my top three of the film, even though it can be a quote-unquote bad adaptation that it cuts a lot out. But I, I think what makes it a superior movie is that it takes all, I mean, it's so cinematic. I mean, that's the only film to get, you know, a major nomination at the Oscars. It was nominated for Best Cinematography and I think it lost to, I don't remember, I don't remember who, what it lost to, but um, it was, it's such a cinematic movie. It has all these like grand, grand emotions, grand being played out, and it sort of ties together into this 
you know, beautiful film about love and death and betrayal and passion. And and it even sort of takes these, you know, mundane romantic subplots, you know, like Romilda Vane giving Harry <laughs> a love book. I love her. Her. Go- Ooh, Romilda. <laughs> Who's that? Yeah. Who's that? H is Romilda. Is what I would say if I was Harry. <laughs> I mean, I love the name Romilda. So. Um, I'm gonna name my first daughter Romilda. Yeah, you should. That um, and but <laughs> it sort of ties everything together into this. Happily Ever After becomes this movie about people like stepping out into these, you know into these, like, dark areas where they're just not quite sure what they're doing and they're not quite sure what the result will be or they're not quite sure if they even should be doing what they're doing. But they have to do it and they have to take the plunge. And, all and that parallels completely with, like, the all of the romance and everything. Um, exactly. Harry has to take I the mean, plunge with Ginny, but... Which Ginny's character is not developed at all in the films. Like, we don't learn how she's such a man-eater and, like, um, how she's really fiery and smart and, uh, Well, we can sort of talk about Bonnie Wright. I mean, is it because she is a a lacking actress or is it just not enough time to develop her as the major character that she is in the film? I don't think there was enough time at all. I mean, the most... I think in... In total, Harry and Ginny were on screen together for, like, 20 minutes. Maybe. Yeah. Not even that. And part of that was probably, um, like, where they weren't actually together. You know, it was a DA scene or, a, like, a fight scene of some kind. But then we also sort of know that Ginny has always had a soft spot for Harry, so... I guess in some ways you don't really need to show their courtship too much because that attraction to Harry is sort of always in the back of the mind. I mean, it's been there since the first her first scene in Chamber of Secrets. That's true. Like That's true. Years old. Right. I mean, we don't really know where Harry gets his attraction to Ginny from. You just sort of have to accept the fact that I mean, Bonnie Wright is an attractive girl, and you know, I guess you sort of have to accept the spunk that she. That's, like, sort of implied, you know, when she, like, tells off Ron for interfering with her love life. <laughs> and, I mean, she's a great Quidditch player also. That's you true. Know. Right. She's athletic. She's perfect. Great. Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> Thanks. Well, another thing about um, Half-Blood of Prince is that you're missing... You don't learn about Voldemort, about Voldemort's past and where he comes from. And in the... In the films, I think Voldemort is the character that has been changed the most from what he is in the book. Um, you know, we mentioned this in, in the Fame show, but in the in the films, like Voldemort is this showman. He makes bad jokes. He laughs. He makes creepy laughs. Like he's he's condescending in the in the books as well, but. At least in the books, you get an idea of just how sinister he is, and how how much pain was in his life to make him so, you know, not just jaded, but like jaded to the billionth power. Right, right. 
So why, I mean, what do, you, what do we get about Voldemort? You know, that he was the really creepy kid. But we don't know why he was a really creepy kid. <laughs> or why he was such a tortured yeah. kid. There, I mean, there's a lot of the subplot missing in Half-Blood Prince. But why is it a that, subplot? What? Why is it a, why do you say that it's a subplot? I mean, only because it's somewhat secondary to, I mean, I mean, Harry Potter is about Harry's journey, and Voldemort's sort of backstory is secondary to that. I mean, it's important. I mean, I'm not saying it's inconsequential. I mean, it definitely has a substantial effect on, I mean, everything. But, I mean, I just mean it's a subplot in that. It's like a, not on his side story, but it's just, you know, a parallel plot to Harry's story. I just think it's very important in the Half-Blood Prince book. And this is something you you told me. I just I just wanted you to get into sort of the, the scenes that are missing. Well, um, we, what's missing, I think, is the history of Merovgant, which is Voldemort's mother, and her sort of... Um, and how she was abused and neglected by her father, Marvolo, and her brother, Morphin, and her sort of infatuation with Tom Riddle, and how, you know, eventually she, um, eventually she, like, brewed a love potion for Tom, and he impregnated her, but then he left her once the love potion started to wear off, or maybe she started to feel guilty about tricking him into loving her. But and that that all that is sort of missing uh, in the Hapkins film. But and I mean to be honest, I I do miss it because it's very it has this very you know melodramatic soap like soap opera feel to it. And that sounds like a bad thing, but I mean I'm I'm someone who like loves high melodrama. If it's done <laughs> very, like if it's done in a sophisticated way, if it's if it's more like nuanced than just you know, I mean I I don't mean soap opera like you know, passions or days of our lives type. I mean, what? it's like, no? it, has, it has, <laughs> has this very, like, high emotional, it's very romantic and tragic. It's something out of an opera or out of, you know, Greek tragedy or something. But, um, but why not include it in the, in the film? Why not show why Voldemort has such an aversion to love and why he can't understand it? Because he never saw it in his life. He never, like, his mother, you know, fake faked love, and that's how he was created. I think it has to do with economy, I mean, for the most part. You know, I think when you're making a film out of a book that's over 600 pages or 700 pages, you have to cut things out in order to make for a more cohesive, a more a watchable film. I mean, as much as us Harry Potter fans would love a four-hour adaptation, it's just not feasible in terms of money and convenience. I mean, like, movie theaters hate when movies are longer than two and a half hours because you don't get as many show times. That's you know true. what I mean? So, um, but I, I mean, I think what they had to do is they had to see which of the memories, I mean, J.K. Rowling gives us, you know, three or four, maybe five of them. And um, they, I guess they had to look and see, okay, which one was the one that showed Voldemort at the best. And I think they chose the right one, the scene of the orphanage. And that's what it gives you, that creepy child 
who knows he has a lot more power than most people and wants to use it against them. I mean, that's Voldemort. That's true. I just think that if you show kind of how a family breaks up, you can understand how his family breaks up. You can understand then why he doesn't he doesn't believe in it, and he doesn't want to create a society that has caring or love or family. Which is what Voldemort is really fighting against. It's not that he just thinks that it's. It's a waste of time, it doesn't fit in, it doesn't, people don't, you know, that's all just a hindrance, because he's never experienced it. Yeah. And it's never been provided to him. While Harry, you know, comes to Hogwarts and finds all this, you know, all of these, this place that cares about him and, and wants him, and all these people that care about him and want him and love him, well, when Voldemort... You know, we always see these parallels to Harry, but when Voldemort came to Hogwarts, it wasn't just... It wasn't that he found a place that... Or people that loved and cared for him. It just... It it was a place where he would feel accepted. Right. It's a difference, because, you know, you would think that... Harry, who didn't have much love in his life growing up either but was protected by this spell of love, or hypothetical spell of love. I think it also goes down to, you know, what themes do the filmmakers want to glean from the book? I read an amazing article um, on the tvclub.com, which is a terrific site, and um, it's basically talking about what makes a good film adaptation. And uh, they're saying how sometimes you know, a straight adaptation that basically puts the words of the page onto the screen doesn't really make for a great movie because it can, can some, it can kind of seem flat and uninspired, which is the same problems that we have with Sorcerer's Stone and Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. And um, and they said that a, a good adapta- a good adaptation is one where they sort of pick up the most resonant themes from the book and they expand on them and they play with them and they focus only on those themes so that the film becomes its own entity, entity as opposed to just, you know, a version of the book. Like, you know, and, like, one of my favorite book-to-film adaptations, and maybe it's one of yours also, but it's the 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Peter Knightley. Oh, yes. And, uh, and I, I remember when I first saw the film, it was, I think it was before I read the book, actually, and I was totally amazed by it. And then I read the book, and there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it to the final cut of the film. And I was like, you know what, it doesn't matter, because they picked up all the right things that I thought were most important and most beautiful from Jane Austen. And they not only, you know, focused on those, and made them, but they made the book more accessible, more uh, relatable. I mean, Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 film, seems very modern, even though it takes place in the 1790s. And I think that's what happens with, you know, Prison of Azkaban and Half-Blood Prince and both Deathly Hallows films. And even Order of the Phoenix, they, they sort of take all the most interesting and humorous and modern and relatable themes, you know, like an Order of the Phoenix, sort of oppression from, you know, the authority of the school. I mean, that is such a, that's something everyone feels. 
when they're in high school that wow all the teachers and the principal they're all just right like, and they capture they capture the feeling so what you're saying you know the films that you mentioned including pride and prejudice is that the feeling of the book is captured right even if it even it may be cutting out some some of the even if it cuts out some of the best or some of our favorite moments. And the problem with Goblet of Fire is that you don't really get that sense of teamwork and camaraderie and all these other, you know, you know, creating a network and, and building off of it and um, making bonds and friendship, which is what Goblet of Fire is about. You don't really get that right. from the movie. You don't I mean, start to Goblet see... I'm sorry, Goblet of Fire is also a lot about fame, as we discussed in episode three, but um, I feel like even that, they sort of hint at it, and it's a, it, it's it's still running through the film, but it's not explored as much as we would like to. I mean, the Rita Skeeter subplot, you know, of her, you know, her as the Beatle, that is completely cut out, and so you just have, like, two or three scenes with Miranda Richardson, who plays her. Right, well, I mean, the, in in the Goblet of Fire book, you know, this the song that the hat gives is all about how you have to build these strong connections that are going to support you and protect you. Right. And that's why you have this Triwizard Tournament, and Dumbledore says that at his speech, that it's about, you know, young witches and wizards coming together. And yeah, it's a competition, but it's more about meeting you know, meeting and finding these people that are going to help you and that are going to go you're going to work towards mutual goals with them and that's not something that yeah. you get from the books you don't see you, you don't see enough of that kind of mingling and understanding and the most you get is at the yule ball when you see oh they're dancing together but kind of the bond that's developed between the champions and and all of it you don't you don't feel it. You know, one of my favorite parts of the Goblet of Fire book is uh, when um, Victor Crumb sort of takes Harry aside. And he's like, hey, I'm reading all these things in the newspaper about you and Hermione. Is there anything going on? And Harry's like, no, we're just friends. And then he was like, Harry's surprised that, you know, Victor Crumb was asking about Hermione when they were like, I think it was like right before the third task or right before the second task. You know, and he was just surprised that like Victor Crumb felt so like at least at least comfortable enough with Harry to like ask him such a question and not you know because you sort of expect you know like your your competitor to not really want to speak with you you know especially about things like who you're dating right you know right. what I mean so it sort of felt there there is this sort of camaraderie between the four champions and they at least know that. You know, they're, it's like they might as well stick together because everything's so dangerous. Yeah, and that's, I mean, what, what, well, another thing that's kind of funny about, which I love about the book, uh, Goblet of Fire, is how, you know, Mad-Eye Moody isn't really Mad-Eye Moody, it's Barty Crouch, but he's kind of this, you know, he gives all these, he tells Harry how to handle the, how to handle the, the tasks, but... He says, you know, cheating's been a part of this competition since the beginning. <laughs> right. <laughs> but maybe that's part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Teamwork. I mean, teamwork is definitely a, a running theme throughout the books, especially in the last two films and the last book. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you, what did you think of the idea of splitting up Deathly Hallows into two movies? Oh, I thought it was great. Yeah. I, I don't know how, I really don't know how they would have done it in one, in one film. Like, it would have been was, like I a, know. it would have been like a Return of the King, like three and a half hours long and just parts in it would have dragged. It just wouldn't be as mo- as moving or there wouldn't be as much motion in it then. Because, like, we don't need to know that Harry Wanwan and Hermie hung out at Grimald Place for whatever weeks doing research yeah. and analysis, you know? Right. Like, I, uh, I, I have to say that Deathly Hallows Part 1 is probably my, like, favorite, or at least second favorite. Because uh, even though... If we, I, I think a major criticism that people had of it was that it just feels like a lot of build-up and no payoff. And I was like, well, duh, it's one half of the story. Yeah, exactly. You kind of have to watch them together. Kind of like how you watch both Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 together because it's one story and to stop it in the middle is, it's like an intermission instead of the end of its own movie. But I kind of like that it's a lot of build-up. It feels very tense and, you know, there's all this paranoia and a lot, it's very, there's a lot, there's an air of despair and hopelessness that I really like, and I, it's, it's very deep, emotionally. Um, I may be so, so bold as to book. say that I think I liked Deathly Hallows Part 1 more than I liked Part 2. I agree, yeah. And I think part of that is because, one, I was just so excited for it to come out. I remember waiting in line outside, <laughs> like, with my... Gryffindor scarf, my Hogwarts t-shirt, with, like, my winter coat from Boston. And then it came out, and we saw it, and I was just so excited, you know, that this movie is here, and it's everything I wanted. <laughs> but And you really get, you get some scenes where you just get to spend time with the three characters. And even though they're sort of sitting in a tent, not really doing anything active, you get a lot of, a lot, a lot of character development a lot of exploration of who these kids really are. Now that they're 17, they're, you know, technically they're adults now in the wizarding world, and they're sort of stuck on this impossible mission, you know, and they have no idea where they're going. And, I mean, we talked about this before and how, like, you wish you could be, you know, Harry and Hermione. Well, do do you want to bring up what you mean by how you get more character insight? Maybe even more than you get in the book? Do you have, like, a scene or something? Well, uh, one of my favorite scenes in Deathly House Part 1 is the scene after um, after the Godric's Hollow part, you know, when Harry and Hermione are sort of talking in the Forest of Dean, and she is explaining um, how she and her family used to come here, but now they can't anymore because she's modified her parents' memories and you know, she has this really great line where she's like, they won't remember you know, the war, they won't remember the lake they won't even remember me and then she's like, let's just stay here and grow old together, Harry and it's such a great scene for both of them, because for one thing, I think a lot of times you don't really get to see a lot of Harry and Hermione time alone I mean, Prince of Azkaban, yes a lot, but it's either always the three of them or Hermione and Ron, or Harry and Ron, and you don't really get to spend that much time with, you know, 
Harry and Hermione alone together. And um, that, that Forest of Dean scene, which I posted on my Facebook wall many times, <laughs> it, um, it's, it speaks to me on a really real level because it's sort of that moment when you have this really important task in front of you and you just panic and you're just, let's just not even do it and just stay together because at least now we know we're safe in this moment as opposed to when we actually start moving again, start working again, you know, it's more, it's extremely dangerous. And you learn about I mean, Hermione, like and that's so important in, in knowing what kind of a character she is. Yeah, it's the second to last movie, but, you know, that's that's where you see Hermione kind of actually being really vulnerable, um, yeah. kind of saying that I, <laughs> I let go of my parents, you know, the people that... It, it really hits you. I mean, I, I think Deathly Hallows Part 1 is probably Hermione and Emma Watson's best film. I mean, best, best in terms of performance, best in terms of development, because, you know, for one thing, she's probably the most active of the trio. I mean, she's the one that does everything. I mean, she has that magical bag. She's like, um, when Ron gets flinched after the Ministry of Magic, she's the one who's, like, putting enchantments you know, all over. She's the one who thinks of where they can go when they operate. Yeah, she's and, such a go-getter. Uh, she's so strong. She's so intelligent. She's strong. And it, but at the same time, you know it's all just a mask for the fact that she's so terrified and she's sad because she said bye to her parents, possibly forever. I mean, actually, you don't even know if they ever reconcile. Yeah, you don't. We don't know. Aren't mentioned again. I mean, <laughs> I assume they would once, once Baltimore. But we don't have a know. knowledge of Sorry, I totally like, cut you off. We don't have a knowledge of, like, how memory charms work and if they can be reversed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of my favorite, like, one of my favorite scenes is the scene in the cafe when they have to, um, when they have to sort of fight the death eaters who become there, and she has to perform the memory charm on them, the Obliviate spell. And you can sort of tell it's extremely hard for her because it sort of brings back the memory of, like, the first time she had to do it to her parents. And you yeah. can really, like, see it on, like, on Emma Watson's face and how it's just, like, um, it's just, it's really difficult for her. Because right, it hurts I think that, so like, much. That's when that, I feel like that's at the payoff for the season in the beginning where she does it to her parents because you don't really realize then how dangerous and how final this memory charm is, but... When it happens again to the Death Eaters, it really hits you. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and also, well, maybe one failing point of, of the first film is sort of how Ron's character is treated. He's still the, the comic relief, you know? And, and I guess he does play that role with the trio and in the series, you know, but... When he when he comes in and he has that whole ball of light thing and and all, and all of it, you know he could have been more serious with with when he was wearing the Horcrux and and everything. But I guess it's hard to show yeah. that. Hard to show that. It's definitely. Yeah, I I always thought that you know the whole like ball of light thing. Cause I don't remember it from the books because I haven't. I mean, I'm rereading Deathly Hallows now. And I haven't gotten to that part yet, but. When I first kind of saw that, I thought he was lying for some reason. <laughs> it seemed so comical. And, 
you know, um, and, like, Harry says something like, oh, keep going with the ball of light and she won't be mad at you anymore. And it's what it feels like, like, in romantic comedies when, you know, the hero has to, like, placate the heroine. Yeah, absolutely. Has, like, it's a very... Some, like, big scene about, and I was like, it, I, I mean, uh, maybe in the book it's also treated humorously and then I guess it would be fine, but when I saw the film, I just got the impression of, like, okay, this is totally BS. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I mean, I mean, talk about this a little bit in our gender roles episode, how, like, Hermione always kind of plays that, like, mother figure to them. She just, like, keep them in line, and I guess it's just sort of, like, I guess, okay, we're in the seventh of eight movies, like, let's, let's move on to that, like... Yeah, I mean, would, would, would Hermione have been accepted back into the group if she had been the one to leave? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, w- I would assume so because she's... I mean, they're all extremely valuable to each other. But Hermione yeah. is the most valuable. <laughs> In our opinion. <laughs> Not the chosen one. <laughs> Not the boy that's going to change everything. <laughs> Hermione. <laughs> okay, I know we're... I mean, I'm really biased with Hermione because she's my favorite character. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. Uh, but, you know, I think the... I think what we've identified during this episode is that we've noted that an adaptation is successful only if it captures the feelings and emotions that are in the book. And that you can have a film where you show everything that happens, but it can lack so much depth and value. For example, in Deathly Hallows Part 2, um, it, it really does capture that sort of, like, war feeling of, like, the last half of Deathly Hallows, the book. Like, it's definitely a lot of chaos, a lot of, a lot of carnage, a lot of despair, and, you know, a lot of fighting. But I didn't care for it the first time because I thought that it was just... I mean, for one thing, it was almost impossible to live up to the expectations. Because it's, like, the final Harry Potter film. I mean, they had, like, posters everywhere, every important character ever. <laughs> and so it was, just hard, it was just hard to live up to the hype. But then I also felt that they just didn't really focus on things that I wanted them to focus on. I thought it wasn't as epic as it probably could have been. But then when I saw it again a couple of months later, I just like, loved it because it felt so final. And so It was such a great conclusion to the series. Yeah, I, I like how you just brought up how it's so difficult for... It, it would have been nearly impossible for it to have lived up to its ex- expectation. I mean, this book, yeah. like, the, the series ending, just everything that I felt, and, and obviously you felt, and obviously what other fans felt, how could you ever put that, you know, on film? How could you ever put that in some place that wasn't in my mind? Uh, right. But, and I agree, you know, the first time I saw it, of course I was blown away and sad and happy and... Like, what am I going to do with my life now? Oh, yeah, I create a podcast <laughs> with my cousin. Um, but <laughs> but as I see it, you know, when I watch it more and more and, and I see it again, I just, I really do see that, wow, this, you definitely get the feeling that this is it. Like, this is where Harry, like, proves himself. And this is where we learn what the, what our whole lives have been about. <laughs> right. Uh, I think I, I think the main issue that 
films have when they're made of books or like comic books or plays is that how do you stay loyal to the fans without alienating non-fans? But then, because I've I've been reading some reviews of like as far back as Half-Blood Prince and being like, is the series over yet? Or you know, this book is totally inaccessible to non-fans. And I'm kind of like, well, what are you doing watching the sixth film of an eight-movie series if you don't know anything about the series? Yeah, I mean, what are like? How does that even apply? Like, you can't just pick it up and you can't pick up the book and start reading it and know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I do think that the films do have a a lot of standalone quality, but you can't expect to understand it completely. No, this is not James Bond. No, right. (laughs) Imagine if it was James Bond. (laughs) Some Potter. Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, if uh, Harry Potter would get his on, then he definitely would have hooked up with Romilda Thane. Oh my gosh. And everybody else. And totally Fleur. <laughs> oh my gosh, we didn't even mention oh Fleur god. in this episode. <laughs> oh my god, how could we? Not the darling. Not our darling Fleur. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this about Fleur Delacour is that... Um, I remember when I saw the fourth movie, I was like, she and Cedric are not as beautiful as I imagined them to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Terrible. Um, watch as your death Lord... threats roll in. Just Let's just watch and see how they roll in. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I like Robert Pattinson a lot as an actor. Outside of Twilight, I think he's a terrific actor. But um, I was not impressed with his looks, nor with... Well, but she grew on me in the seventh film. On the contrary, I was very impressed with Cedric's looks. <laughs> oh my gosh, stop! Don't giggle like that! <laughs> it's not what I meant. <laughs> well, yeah, to, yeah. Uh, to end our show, we have a, a very special shout-out to our very loyal listener. Uh, he tweeted at us and said that... Uh, he was very excited for our fourth episode, and he couldn't wait to leave work. This is at Chaz Manning, so thank you. Yes, thank you. You're the best. And also, you know, big shout-outs to, to all the new people who have liked us on Facebook and who are following us on Twitter. And we urge you, if you haven't, to do so. We really appreciate all the support from our fans. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, please, please leave us you know, your thoughts, what's your favorite film, what did you think was missing, and we'll, we'll probably have another episode on, on something like this. I think we touched on yeah, a couple, I mean, I, we touched on a couple different topics that I would love to kind of blow up and bring up again in a different way. Yes, I agree. I think, you know, look out for another episode on the book to film transitions. Yes. Well, thank you. Da 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 da